This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. The Buddha said, Friends, know that people who have many desires intensely seek fame and gain. Therefore, they suffer a great deal. Those who have few desires do not seek fame and gain and are free from them, so they are without such troubles. Having few desires is itself worthwhile. It is even more so as it creates various merits. Those who have few desires need not flatter to gain others' favor. Those who have few desires are not compelled by their sense organs. They have a serene mind and do not worry because they are satisfied with what they have and do not have a sense of lack. Those who have few desires experience nirvana. This is called having few desires. In my last uh, talk, I started speaking about the eight awarenesses of enlightened beings, the last teaching of the Buddha and the Mahayana tradition. And these are really the eight uh, qualities. In some sense, we could see them as the eight qualities that lead to nirvana, cessation of suffering, but also that are the embodiment of an enlightened being. And the first of these eight awarenesses or awakenings is to have few desires. Now, in the Pali Canon, the Buddha said that the root of suffering, desire, must be abandoned. And yet here he's saying have few desires. Given that we will have them, and anything from the desire to have fame and gain to the desire to awaken for my own sake, for the sake of all beings. Given that we will have them, could it be that he's saying have the right kind of desire, have the skillful, wholesome kind of desire? The Oriyoki chant, uh, one of the phrases that we've been saying every day, says, as we desire the natural order of mind to be free from clinging, we must be free from greed. Is it possible to desire without greed? Is it possible to desire skillfully? And of course, this begs the question, well, what are skillful desires? Some of them would, be, uh, would seem obvious, bodhicitta, raising of the, the mind of awakening, the desire to cultivate compassion, to cultivate the four immeasurables. But is a desire for love, for example, always selfish and therefore unskillful? Is a desire for recognition if you've never been recognized? Is that inherently unskillful? So how do we distinguish what is skillful? 
and unskillful. And then how many is, is few? Three, five, twenty? What is the mind of desire? Who desires and why? And so as I've been you know, spending time with this, I've been looking in myself how I experience desire and its, its nature, that, that moving very much feels like a, a movement towards something, right? that, that hunger. And so often, not always, but so often that fear of going without. And recently, it hit me, desire is relationship. Right? We don't desire what we don't care for. Right, what we don't see. And so we're, we're desiring, we're craving what we are in relationship with. And I was talking to someone uh, recently about uh, neutral feelings. Right? So the Buddha said that there are three main kinds of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant or unple- unpleasant, which we could call neutral and, you know, this, this kind of very simple, there's a practice of, of noting a, a feeling. A, when it, it is a pleasant feeling, to know that it is pleasant. When it is unpleasant, to know that it is unpleasant. And how simple of a practice it would seem to be, and how incredibly powerful. And, you know, just a couple of days ago, I was starting to get upset about something. And I stopped, and I just said to myself, I'm having an unpleasant feeling. And it's amazing how quickly the whole thing was diffused. I mean, I, it, it felt almost funny. It, it, there's no longer even um, the need. He did, she didn't, they should. I am having an unpleasant feeling. And the whole thing just dissolved. And so I was uh, talking to someone about neutral feelings which I think, in general, they're hard to see and they're hard to feel because there is no charge. There is no chemistry. And I think often it's only later that we realize we've overlooked something or someone. We've ignored them. And most often because there was nothing that we could get from it or from them, from that moment. And I think that is what is so painful about desire, that that attitude, what is this thing, this person, this experience going to give me? And if I don't in some way profit from this, then I'm not interested. I stop relating. And so I think desire, in order to be skillful, there's, there's other qualities, but it needs to be balanced, like any other relationship. There has to be a give and take. And the thing is, you know, depending on the strength of that desire, so often it isn't. It is about me, what I will get. And if it's strong enough, it can be blinding. All we see is the goal. All we see or we feel is that drive, that push or pull to get what we want. 
you know, whether that thing is big or small. Of course, the bigger it is, the stronger the pull. But it's a very much a narrowing of our focus, of our ability to see. A few months ago, I was coming down from the interview room just before the uh, work meeting uh, one afternoon, one, I think it was a Friday, and there was a, um, a couple here in the Zendo. And, you know, we often get people passing by and wanting to see the place. And so the, the man was uh, sitting towards the, the back of the Zendo. He was on a, on a Zabuton, and he had camera equipment uh, around him. And then I, I looked up, and there was a, a young woman sitting on Shugen Sensei's seat, uh, <laughs> taking a selfie. <laughs> and uh, I said, um, can I help you? And they said, oh, uh, Shugen told us that it was okay to take a picture. And I said, well, yes, but no. Can you <laughs> come over this way, take it from, from back there? And afterwards, I, I told him, and he just said, are you serious? And, you know, I don't think it's that everyone should know what is what, you know, in, in the Zendo. But you do have to be kind of narrowly focused to not sense that the, the area near the altar has a certain kind of uh, significance. Or maybe she did, and that's why she wanted to take her picture. You know, there's Kathy on Instagram on the abbot's seat. <laughs> and... You know, as I, as I said, you know, when the desire is strong enough, and actually sometimes when it's, when it's not even about something that important, if, it, if there's, a, there's a hook for some reason, then often the only thing that we see or feel is the desire itself. It's not even the thing anymore, the person anymore, the, the experience anymore. It's just that drive to fill a gap, a hole, our, our deeply entrenched sense of lack that in moments can rise to the surface and kind of overtake us. And it's so, so unbearable to feel it that we'll move, quickly we'll move to fill, fill that gap. And at a certain point it's not even rational anymore, right? That's one of the, the qualities of, of passion, an element of irrationality. And the Stoics said that there's, there's four main passions. Uh, distress, which is an irrational contraction. I believe that there is something bad that is present, and therefore we need to avoid it. Fear is an irrational aversion of expected danger. That, too, we need to avoid. And, you know, there are many fears that are, in fact, perfectly Rational, but I think they're they're speaking of something that is that is out of proportion. Our reaction to it is out of proportion with the thing, the situation at hand. Lust is an irrational desire or a, a pursuit for an expected good, and so we want to hold on to it. And delight is an irrational swelling, uh, an opinion that something good is already present. Again, we want to keep it maintain it. 
And really, these four are all based on desire as it manifests either as aversion or as craving. And I would add that they're also accompanied by by the uh, conviction. Conviction, I think, is how, how it feels in those moments that we have to have what we want, what we believe we need. And whether that want is more of this or less of this, I have to have it. And I have, you know, often kind of in the back of my, my mind, in some, some recess of my mind, you know, spied the thought or heard the voice, why should I be uncomfortable? If I don't have to, why should I be uncomfortable? And that thought is the perfect, perfect fuel for desire. That thought is the, the precipitous assumption, as Master Dogen would say, that that having that object of my craving will, will fulfill me, will fill, in fact, that, that gap, will assuage my discomfort. And so we think we have to have more sleep, more food, more sex, more attention, less pain, less discomfort, less annoyance. And when we feel tired or hungry, for example, how, how so often the first um, impulse or the first belief or opinion we have about it is that there's something wrong. There's something that it needs to change. Now, I mean, if it goes on for long enough, then yes, there is something wrong. But mostly it's just this, this, this reactivity, right? this habitual reaction to a discomfort. And if you, if you think or feel for a moment the intolerability of that state in between, when you're not sure, you don't know if you're going to get what you want, and how, how irritated that can, that can make us. And, you know, taken to the extreme, that liminal state is uh, addiction. It's unbearable, quite literally, unbearable to not have the next hit, which will either give me uh, the pleasure that I'm seeking, or at the very least it will numb me from the pain. And, you know, you don't have to be a drug addict. It can be addiction to Facebook, to clothes, to certain foods. And Rebecca Solnit has this very powerful quote. You know, she says that, that meth addicts dig their grave with what they thought were wings because meth gives you such a, an enormous amount of euphoria at the same time that it, that it kills the brain receptors that are um, sensing ordinary pain. And so, so each time you have less capacity to feel pleasure, to feel ordinary pleasure, uh, pleasure, not pain, which, enforce, uh, which in turn forces you to take more and more meth. And I think that's... That's true to, to some extent of all addictions. You know, this um, promise, this promise of pleasure at the same time 
that it is numbing you to that same degree, that same amount of pleasure. So desire, that kind of desire feels good until it doesn't. That's why I think such a big part of working with desire is tolerating the discomfort, that uh, shimmering anxiety that, that comes with a want, and to gradually expand your capacity to tolerate that discomfort. So you have space to ask, is this what I really want? Is this what I need? Will it fulfill me, actually? Which also requires knowing yourself, knowing what you want, knowing what you feel at any given moment, and why. Uh, last, last weekend, we were, uh, Hoji Nosha and I were... Um, doing a retreat at the temple called Live Lines. And um, it was really working with the four immeasurables, uh, both from the perspective of of liturgy and uh, creative expression. And, you know, at some point she leaned over to me and she whispered, you know, I really want to ask them how they feel about this thing that we did. And I had to stop and be like, right, feelings, right, right. Yes, we should ask them how they feel. Um, I think that's why we make a good team. You know, it's like right brain, left brain. <laughs> um, but that that knowing <laughs> ever more uh, clearly and and intimately what you feel. So in a moment, you're not uh, responding out of that um, either that desire to numb or that fear. Sometimes fear of just that feeling itself, right? So that it's that it's uh, a desire that is that you know will meet, in fact, the need of that moment. And so that that discomfort of of wanting and not having that cellular sense. I think if if we can really feel it, because it feels that deep at times. That cellular sense, what the Buddha meant when he said that the cause of suffering is desire. That it's not really the thing or the person, the feeling that we crave that is suffering. It is that awful sense of having, of wanting and not having, or wanting and having and wanting again and again and again. That contraction of the self into a ball of craving. The fear, the anger, the grief, the, the very real sense of loss that if you don't get what you want, somebody else might. There's a, a, a story that, um, when it was published in 1882, created quite a, a, a stir and it's by Frank Stockton, who was a contemporary of Mark Twain. And he apparently was very prolific, and yet he became known really for primarily, almost exclusively, for this story. It's like four pages. 
and it's called the lady or the tiger. And there's a, there's a place, there's a kingdom in which a king, a semi-barbaric king, the story says, feels that he's come upon the best, the... Uh, well, yes, the, the best, really, the perfect method for meting out justice. And so he's built an arena that has two identical doors. And behind them is a tiger, the fiercest tiger in in the kingdom, a man-eating tiger. And behind the other door is a lady, chosen each time very carefully, very specifically. Though I'm sure without asking her (laughs) at all (laughs) what she wants. And so when when a man, because it seems like... uh, all the uh, convicts in this kingdom are, are men, or the women are treated differently, and we don't know how. Uh, but whenever a man is brought before the king to be judged, to be tried, uh, he's brought to the arena. And so this is public. And he's made to open one of the doors. Now, if he opens the door with a tiger, clearly he was guilty, and he's devoured on the spot. If he opens the door with a lady, he's rewarded by marrying her. And, you know, now besides the obvious concerns about the, the soundness of this, this system, <laughs> um, there's the fact that he's not asked whether he wants to marry her if he's proved innocent. And so if he's already married, too bad. Now he has two wives. And, of course, they don't... Probably in most cases, they don't even know each other. They've never seen each other. But these are the conditions, and no one, no one has uh, been able to change them or oppose them. Or if they did, you know how they ended up. And so one day, the king finds out that his daughter, the princess, is having an affair with a man who, although he's very kind and brave and handsome, uh, is below her. In station, And so he, the king, who's uh, extremely jealous, decides on the spot that he's to go to the arena. And so the day comes when the man is standing there in front of the, the doors, and the arena is packed because by now everybody knows that, the, uh, that he was a princess lover. And they're both there, the king and the princess, in the seats of honor because they always go to watch the games, if you will. But this time, things are a little different because the princess knows behind which door is the tiger and which one holds the lady. And not only that, she knows who the lady is. Is one of the ladies of her court, the most beautiful one, in fact, who she has suspected has had eyes for this young man. She saw them talking a few times before, and her blood was just boiling. And so she has spent several nights in a row kind of contemplating the the, the parallel options of her um, lover being eaten, brutally killed by this tiger, or marrying this, uh, this woman, this beautiful woman who is not her. And so when it's time for, for the man to, to uh, choose a door, he stands, he's supposed to always stand before the king first. And so he does, but instead he's looking at her. 
because he has a sense that she probably has been able to find out. And immediately he sees her, sees her face, and sees that she knows. And so just with his eyes, he's saying, which one? And with the tiniest gesture of her hand, she indicates the door on the right. Without hesitation, he goes straight to the door and he flings it open. And the question the story leaves you with is which one came out of the door, the lady or the tiger? And don't spend your zazen time trying to figure this out. (laughs) Hobbes said that desire is the fundamental motivation for all human action. The Buddha said that it's the engine that keeps the self running, moving towards pleasure, moving away from pain, and that there is no stronger desire than the desire to be. But for us, the question is, to be what? To be who? Now, what is this self that we're so fiercely trying to acquire all these things for? And the the quote I read in the beginning is from Master Dogen's Hachi Dainengaku, The Eight Awarenesses of Great Beings, which was also his last teaching, Dogen's last teaching, before he died. And so he said, those who have few desires are not compelled by their sense organs. They have a serene mind and do not worry because they are satisfied with what they have and do not have a sense of lack. And you know, the, the next uh, awareness is to be satisfied, to know how to be satisfied, to not have a sense of lack. And I think this is really the key. I think those who have few desires know that things, that people, that fame and and gain won't fill me, won't fix me, won't ultimately comfort me or secure my well-being. And this doesn't mean uh, at all that you can't enjoy a good meal, good company, good book, that you can't enjoy sex or praise. It means knowing who you are and knowing what things are and what they are for. You can choose to pick them up. You can choose to put them down. It means knowing that other people are not the means to your happiness. They are people trying, as you and I are trying, to live a happy fulfilling life. And you know and, and we know we know that the root of suffering is desire because the Buddha said it. But what is the root of happiness? You know, when we wish the first of the four immeasurables, may you be filled with happiness and know the root of happiness. What is that root? What leads to true happiness? Shasta Abbey has a a translation of this same fascicle and is slightly different. In in another section it says, the person of few cravings is free from seeking after things or yearning for them. Hence, they are free of such sufferings. They desire little, only esteeming what is fitting for their spiritual training and practice. 
The heart of someone who behaves with few desires is, as a consequence, composed and free from gloom, anxiety, sorrow, and fear. So an awakened being, and this includes all the beings on the road, the path to awakening, learns with much practice and trial and error what desires are actually satisfying, which desires are skillful and fitting for spiritual practice and training. And I don't think this means just you know, studying the sutras or sitting. It could be going for a long run, taking a nap to recharge yourself, sitting down with someone and just talking, just shooting the breeze. Yes, perhaps idle talk, but deliberately and for their benefit. To make them feel comfortable, to meet them you know, where they are, to invite them in. So skillful desires sabotage the, the exclusivity of the self, Kandra Rinpoche calls it. So again, is it possible to have desire and be free from gloom and anxiety and sorrow and fear? To feel true fulfillment. Think of uh, a moment of anger, for example. Someone has hurt you or misunderstood you, disagreed with you. And you know in that moment, you know, there's that moment where it just, it just flares up. And then you know... Hopefully, if you can, uh, pause long enough to, to know, now I can choose to feed this, this anger, and that's one kind of desire. Or I can choose to, if I'm not able to put it down, maybe transform it. What's anger is energy, right? Can I turn that energy towards this person's well-being? Can I wish them well-being in my mind? Because I think so often we think that letting go of anger means exposing ourselves to be taken advantage of. Like we'll be, I don't know, looked down on, or like we're, we're, it, it will be shown then that we were wrong. We, we hold on to our anger to the sense of being right. That's why, you know, I often say that, that you really want, need to want to be free more than you want to be Right. To, to not see it as such a, a, an either-or situation in which if you let go, you'll lose ground, you'll lose face. Now we think that if we grasp tightly enough, what we're holding on to won't change. And yet, if and when we do let go, and, and further turn to what is vast, what is truly unchanging, then we experience something very different. And I've heard many people say, and I've said it myself, that those moments, during Sashin especially, when we feel we have everything we need, when we are everything we need, in moments which is clear that our... That our we feel filled 
by a strong sense of joy, of contentment. I mean, the sutras call it bliss. They call it rapture. What is happening in those moments? Why the utter lack of desire, of grasping, of wanting me or things to be otherwise? You know, in the next moment you're wishing, you know, do you, you're strategizing to get down to dish crew first to get to the sink because it's the only job that you like. And you're, the, the, the thought in your mind, you know, so-and-so is always at the sink. Why don't they let me? So-and-so never helps, you know, in dish crew. In those moments, notice the anxiety creeping in. Notice the disquiet, the gloom, the sorrow, the fear. What if I don't get what I want? Notice, if it's stronger, the resentment, the contraction. Notice the the walls closing in. Or how fleeting that satisfaction is, in fact, when you do get what you want. How quickly it's replaced by the next, the next want. The only, the only story that I've, that I've ever read by, by Stephen King was about this, and it was called Needful Things. And it was a, a man who opens a store and has exactly what you want. He knows exactly what you want. And these are random things, like a baseball card or a lampshade. But he knows that is your particular thing. And he sells them to you at a very uh, cheap price, under the condition that you play a prank to someone else in the in the town. And, you know, since this is Stephen King, you can <laughs> pretty much foresee that things are not going to go well. But that, 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 that title is that needful things has stayed with me all these years because it's, it's exactly that. And I think, what is the line between what I want and what I need? Do I know the difference, actually? How needful is this thing I believe I need so strongly? No suffering, no cause of suffering, says the Heart Sutra. No extinguishing, no path, no wisdom and no gain. No gain, and thus the Bodhisattva lives prajna paramita, with no hindrance in the mind, no hindrance, therefore no fear. Far beyond deluded thoughts, this is nirvana. And Dogen says, those who have few desires experience nirvana. This is called having few desires. We could say that without all the accumulated debris you know, that, we, that we pick up along the way, that we put in bags and closets and storage rooms, real or mentally formed, without it comes um, our ability to be closer to joy and to see and to be amazed really at the most ordinary of things. Cheswav Miwash said that poetry is um, an attempt to break through the density of reality into a zone where the simplest things are again as fresh as if they were being seen by a child. Sean spoke about this uh, in a way yesterday. 
And I think this is very much what we're trying to do with practice. Except, you know, maybe it would be more accurate to say that we're trying to break through the density of the self to see that in reality, things are always fresh and new. Things don't get stale in reality. They don't get old. They don't get boring. Reality doesn't know boredom. This is a a poem called Music of the Spheres by Jean Follat. She was walking a frozen road. In her pocket, iron keys were jingling. And with her pointed shoe, absent-mindedly, she kicked the cylinder of an old can, which for a few seconds rolled its cold emptiness, wobbled for a while, and stopped under a sky studded with stars. We don't vow every day to put an end to desires because desires are bad. We're vowing to put an end, which really means seeing, understanding, realizing that which gets in the way of living our lives fully, of being ourselves fully, of seeing and feeling and uh, caring unconditionally, not because that will make me feel better, because it is, in fact, who I am, because it is the most natural, it's the natural order of mind, it's the most natural way to live a human life. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.